And that, for a change, is The Smiths with the track Sweet and Tender Hooligan from the album Louder Than Bombs. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest is going to be, yes, you guessed it, David Miller from 
Finney Drive. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into about three or even four easy to digest little segments for your delight alongside the usual award worthy playlist. But because we're hyperventilating with excitement, because you know what song I'm going to play next, don't you? Yes, it's going to be the one that we all fell in love with. This is The Testimony. Just turn up your stereos.
Well, if that didn't get you gyrating, then nothing will. That was Finney Tribe, and that was their chart band sound. Yes, Detestimony. That's the one that we all fell in love with back in the day, and we still love it, even three decades later. Yes, indeed. This is David Esau. This is the C86 Show, and this week's special guest, all the way from Edinburgh, I'm guessing, I'm just hoping, um, is David Miller from the band, because um, I could spoke to him a few months ago in probably quite a lot longer actually but um, it's been there nagging away in the back of my mind I must do a Finney Tribe special because let's face it I couldn't call myself an 80s kid without um, at least including one special by them so um, yes I got round to it and I thought this is it this is going to be the moment so Welcome to the show. If you want to contact us, I know I'm just going to do admin now, aren't I? You can via Twitter or Facebook, just go to at C86show. And also all the archives of this show, which have been going on now for over two and possibly a half years, are on various kind of platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. So do check that out because um, I've been sort of going through the entire 80s and a few 90s bands from that particular era. But anyway, like I said, I spoke to David Miller a few months ago, so I've got that interview coming up right soon. But I think we should have another track by the band before that interview. This is going to be taken from a John Peel session that was recorded in 1989, February, in fact, the 12th, um, produced by the one and only Dale Griffith. This is Electro Lux.
And there you go. That is Finney Tribe with a track titled Electro Lux. That came from a John Peel session recorded on the 12th of February 1989. And that was featuring David Miller, also Philip Pinsky and John Vick. And that had been produced by Dale Griffith. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with David Miller from the band, when I was probably babbling on about the um, the history of the indie pop scene of the 80s and probably talked about the Smiths and then probably even talked about, um, I don't know, that electro band from Germany called Dissidenten. I always love to mention them. And then asked about the distinctive sound of Finney Tribe. And this was David's reply. David, tell us about that distinctive noise that you were making back in the day. Yeah, we, well, we formed in 1984 as a... Uh Base. We we were playing. Well, we were playing together before that, but we formed as Finney Tribe in 1984, and we had bass, drums, guitars, keyboard, and vocals. As a very, we weren't a standard indie band because our influences were not standard indie. I suppose it was TG and it was Can and it was David Bowie and and an industrial an industrial sound. We were very we were very into that whole industrial thing and moved towards electronica fairly quickly after after the testimony which was 86 yes so i mean yeah it's kind of interesting your sort of uh, reference points there because because obviously i mean with david bowie was it his low period that you were particularly kind of interested his berlin years with bright you know with yeah. the brian eno production yeah, particularly for well, me, I can't speak for anyone else, but yes, that, absolutely. Um, that was the the, the definite those, those that those trilogy of albums or is it a trilogy? Yes, it is. Um, were yeah, really influential, and I, I you know we still play them to this day. Yes, quite. I never get past them, really. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, I, I do remember sort of listening to Low and being slightly boggled. I was quite young at the time, but kind of, you know, it was those days when you had vinyl records and often would play side one to death and then have that moment where you had to sort of flick it, flick it over to side two. And sometimes, you know, and with that particular album, it was so different that it was quite... Um, it was quite like, is this David Bowie? But yes, it was kind of like those soundscapes. Because the other band, because I mean, the 80s, I mean, without getting too nostalgic about it, but there was kind of, there was some fascinating bands because there was there was people like Leibach that I really liked. And then, you know, a bit later with The Young Gods. So there was those kind of, kind of quite interesting kind of, um, I suppose, kind of industrial and slightly menacing sound as well. Yeah, um, we, were, we weren't adverse to menacing. Um, there's a, there's a few tracks that are not really on albums or um, or on singles, but they made themselves they made their way onto compilation albums. There's things like All Fours and Idiot Strength. Oh, they, that was on a record, but yeah, no, we 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 played with menacing. We played with art, and we played with we played with all sorts of imagery. Um, Lieback Test Department were all influential, um, and we very very quickly got away from, I mean, we very quickly became a three-piece, really, and we dropped anything that was um, seen as a kind of band thing. We, we, we kind of dropped, a little bit earlier than that, we dropped the whole idea of playing as a band and we did performance. Yeah. And obviously that is a very expensive thing to do. It wasn't easy to tour and um, difficult to persuade people to put on. Um, but we did two very 
two big shows in Edinburgh and Glasgow, which still sort of stand the test of time, I think. Um, people remember them, people talk about them. Um, but we were we were just not interested in being an ordinary band. We just we, we, it just didn't so playing having a guitar around your neck just didn't seem right. Yes. Although I have no problem with having a guitar around my neck now or or anybody else who does, but um, it it just didn't fit with how we worked. Yeah, because I remember there was a clip of Depeche Mode. This is a really young Depeche Mode on some sort of music program. He would slightly, there'd been a clip of, I think, Jimmy Page and Roy Harper sort of strumming guitars on a sort of um, a hilly sort of pastoral landscape. And then it sort of cut to them in the studio. And, and obviously they were going through that phase of not, you know, just hating guitars and sort of really rebelling against it which you do when you're very young. Um, I mean, were you, I mean, at the time I was a bit confused with uh, Depeche Mode because I'd lumped them in with the usual new romantics and thinking they were just kind of rather vacuous people, but then realising later on that actually they, they, they did create quite an interesting sound. So were, were you sort of, yeah, because you had a, obviously a similar sort of attitude to, to sort of like destroying the past and that whole guitars, you know, one foot on the Marshall amp and all that kind of business to being something a bit more sort of thoughtful and um, artistic. Yeah, I suppose we were. I mean, I mean, Andy was at art college. We were all interested in art. We were all interested in theatre and and music and we wanted we wanted to do something different. I mean, Depeche Mode didn't really come into it for me until later on. I, I mean, I, I I quite like the pop element to that um, new uh, new romantic industrial thing. I think Depeche Mode are a fantastic band, absolutely incredible band. I mean, I'm not so keen on them now. It kind of all got a bit bloated and um, pompous, really. But their early stuff's quite exceptional. Yeah. And did it take a while? Because there quite a few people I spoke to who made quite a unique sound. It did take a few years before they managed to sort of find how to make that, that, that noise that sort of worked for them. And, and obviously in those early days, because I can remember those, those kind of, there was, there was a compilation of street sounds, sound, yeah, street sounds compilations that had been put together with early sort of hip hop. And, and most of it was quite, you know, the, the engineering and the technical side was quite basic still. So did you struggle to sort of make the sound that you wanted with the sort of limitations of, of yeah, technology that was about at the time? Well, John, um, who to this day is the engineer and, 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 the, and the producer of anything that Finney Tribe or Finney Flex do, um, very quickly embraced um, sampling technology as soon as that was available. We we bought it and, and used it and that opened up all the avenues. Once once we were and we had we had a, we had, we worked with, we worked in a studio in Edinburgh which was open to experimentation. Um, and John was a John is an electrical engineer, uh, a sound engineer. Um, so he immediately understood how all that equipment and magical stuff worked and 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 didn't we didn't stop with it i mean it's it wasn't it, that's what excited us we didn't we we didn't need to go back to conventional instruments to to then make music john kind of saw to that yes. <laughs> and were you sort of looking at you know bands like new order who had started to embrace that dance scene and the sort of the rave scene and the culture that went around uh, went with it as well um, I don't know if we looked to any bands. Um, we were always fairly kind of 
self-sufficient and and in, in that respect we I mean we, we I bought new order records I went to see new order but I don't know if I was we were directly influenced by bands as big as new order I would say we were influenced still more by people like Chuck and Kula from Sheffield Cabaret Voltaire that that still was the thing that kind of moved us forward. I mean, I, Blue Monday is like, you know, a huge record and, and it's in everybody's collection and you can't deny their their influence and their their stature. Um, I'm, we, we always kept ourselves to ourselves in a way, probably probably why we weren't so successful, to be honest. But um, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about other bands. Other bands do what other bands do and we, and we, and we did what we do. And that's why we sound a little bit different to everyone else. We don't quite fit into any any of the electronic categories. I wouldn't say we're a dance act even now, although we've had dance hits. We just made music, and whatever comes out, comes out, and we, we manipulate it and and play it. And it's not, it's not really directly. I mean, John doesn't even have a record collection. John doesn't particularly listen to music outside uh, outside of the studio environment um i do i dj and i listen and i collect lots of records but i don't think we're particularly and in what we make and what we made then i don't think we were particularly influenced by anybody once 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 we moved into making our own music and signed to one little indian signed to london records we, we just did what we did and that was probably a wise move that is also the first part of my interview with david miller from finney tribe um, we've got more of that interview and um, yes indeed I'm sort of feeling like I'm out of my depth on this one but anyway he's being kind to me and I'm sort of desperately trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about and that can only be a good thing anyway I think we'll play some more music this is going to be Monster in the House just 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 who the hell do you think you are? 
Good question. I don't know if I can answer it. Anyway, that is Finney Tribe, and that was the track titled Monster in the House that came out in 1990 on the one little Indian record label. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with David Miller, where I began, all started, all midway through, uh, was started to talk about sort of different record labels and the fact that they had signed to, I think it was um, an American one called Wax Tracks Records. And this was David's answer. I can tell he was gripped by that one. Well, yeah, after the testimony, we, we signed to Wax Tracks for a couple of records. Um, I think uh, we, we were working in Southern Studios in London. Uh, or we, we became friendly with Southern Studios. We'd, we'd done some gigs with Tackhead and we'd done some gigs with Adrian Sherwood. And we got involved with Southern Studios, a guy called John Lauder, who ran Southern Studios, and Alison Schnackenberger, who's still there now. Um, and we got involved with wax tracks that way, and then obviously Chris was um, seduced to go into Chicago and uh, left us to go join the Revolting Cops and Ministry, which you know it was was part of that was part of the whole journey. It was kind of a, it was meant to happen. Yes, and when you recorded, you know, with the track, the testimony was that a moment that you? I mean, with most people when they've recorded one of their iconic numbers, and I was talking to. Sean Dixon from the Soup Dragons, and he was talking about I'm Free. I mean, it, it didn't take long for it to come together, and, you know, it was like, oh, well, that was quite a fun time, and then it sort of becomes this huge hit. I mean, did the process of recording and, and making to testimony, was that quite straightforward? Um, I think the actual the way it came about was that somebody came to the studio with a tape, a quarter-inch tape of some bells from a church. I can't recall the church. But um, we we very quickly sampled the, those bells, and the tune developed from there. Um, the influences around that time were kind of electro, um, and but we weren't particularly aware of the dance scene that was emerging because we made it in 1986. So although Ibiza had started to happen there, it didn't happen until 88. We'd made that record 
put it out, it had sold out, and we'd kind of moved on. We'd moved on to making the next record, or in fact, we were, we were trying to record an album. And it was two years later when I was with, um, I was with Stephen Pastel, and we were in Leeds, and James Brown from, who um, we went on to edit, loaded, came up to us in Leeds, and he said, do you know that your record's massive in Ibiza? And I'd, I, w I wasn't even aware of what was happening in Ibiza, really. So it kind of, again, happened by accident, a very happy accident. And then, then we got calls from people like Pete Tong, and the whole kind of, the whole environment changed. And we were kind of, and then we were invited to Shum by Dan Rampling, and we saw what was happening with dance music, and we met Andrew Weatherall, and we were kind of, we were taken in by that, not overtaken by it, but we enjoyed it, and we found it interesting and innovative, and the community was such a community that embraced people who didn't want to just do the same thing. So that's how that record kind of um, I guess is embedded in our history, but it, it, it was a happy accident. <laughs> yeah, these things normally are. I mean, did that yeah. then change the the kind of, did you suddenly, whatever you're working on, think, oh, wait a minute, something's just happened here, and, and re respond creatively to that kind of success and interest in the testing? Uh, no, not really, not immediately. I mean, we, we, made, we, we made an album called Noise, Lust and Fun, which is pretty noisy and not at all a dance record. It has dance elements, but we just made it anyway and we just carried on with doing what we were doing. We were kind of carried over by it. I mean, like obviously people got in touch because they wanted us to play and they, they expected a certain sound, I suppose, because of the record. So we, we may have subconsciously moved more towards something that um, encouraged people to dance, but we weren't actively going out to be a dance band we never have we're still yeah. not we still make dance records really yeah i mean because my because most bands that i sort of interview they they have about you know like a five-year period you know where they do they do a single john peel session an album then they have that tricky help second album and if they ever go to america that seems to always finish them off and then it's pretty much the end you know within five years but you manage to sort of carry on until about nine, you know that sort of Britpop '96 period, didn't you? I mean, did um, and the did you? Album. Sorry, carry on. And I, I sort of wonder, did you have a sort of moment where you just all felt this is kind of the end in in sort of yeah that sort of mid '90s? Yeah. yeah, I think we um, we'd all been working together since we were at school, so if you it, approximately 15 years we'd all known each other and been working with each other and I think you know at, at 18 you're very different people we we grew apart in the latter years with um, lawyers managers record companies all having a thought on how we should be and it kind of drove us all apart and people change you know all of us changed through that 15 years and I think it was time, and it was it was also a point in time when the music was starting to change. Um, it was pre-internet, um, but very much at the end of we were ended our creative tether, uh, tether, I suppose. We weren't we weren't really working together anymore, um, and we kind of fell out um, quite badly. 
<laughs> um, and went our separate ways. Philip and I carried on making another record with Infectious. John carried on with his studio, developing his studio and carrying on with Finiflex and developing Finiflex. And he has done that ever since. So he never stopped. Um, he never stopped making, well, he never stopped developing the studio. Philip and I stopped making music and we didn't do anything for, uh, I didn't do anything for 16 years. Um, it was only in the last two or three years, or four or five, well, maybe four years, that Philip, uh, John and I had met each other again, worked a few things out and wanted to work together again. But yes, I think, yeah, to answer your question, it, it was the end. We'd, we'd done it 15 years and it it wasn't really financially viable to to carry on we weren't you know it was it was very difficult to to make any money and we and the record business was changing yes we, we'd went london we'd signed to london records put an album out two singles as those hadn't succeeded as they expected them to we we kind of walked into the office and people were turning around going well, who are you you know we, we very quickly became yesterday's deal <laughs> So it was kind of obvious. It was kind of like, okay, it's time to do something else. <laughs> and did you have a moment where you kind of sat down and said, yeah, shall we just call it a day now? Um, no, it wasn't as pleasant as that. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I won't say any more on that. That's fair enough. These things are always a bit tricky. I mean, the other thing that people have, which I didn't hadn't appreciated, was with this sort of ownership of, of sort of music, because often... You know, like keeping that sort of the publishing and sort of being able to still access it, or at least sort of as as one gets older, thinking, oh, it'd be quite nice to do a, a compilation and get the archives and and put it all out there. You know, as a sort of a way of of tidying things up. Did you manage to sort of keep track of your music? Um, not particularly. Um, London or whoever owns London now have one album, one that Lindian have. Three albums, I think, and, and you know we have we have communication with one of the Indians. So if we were to do something, it would be through them. Um, and the stuff prior to that, we have some ownership of. I don't think I think we probably have the wax track stuff back, and anything we did before that, we have back. And the first album uh, was released on Finiflex anyway, so that's ours. But publishing wise disappeared into Universal's vault. I haven't even looked at the publishing rights of that any of that music for so long. It may even now be close to 25 years, in which case it might revert back to us. It's quite hard because if we want to do anything, the six of us who were originally involved and to coordinate that is difficult. Um, it's not an easy. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's really an appetite for it anyway at the moment. We did. John and I put two releases out in the last four or five years of the testimony. We remixed the testimony and and 101, and they both came out and did reasonably well. And that's about as far as I want to go with it. I mean, we've just been exhibited in the National Museum of Scotland um, as part of the Rip It Up exhibition, and I feel now that. That really is the point where Finney Tribe as an entity, as a band, is closed. <laughs> it's, it's kind of closed for business. Um, there's there's so many other things that we're both doing that have more interest. And the Finney Flex project is is where any recorded music and any, involved, any kind of Finney 
output will be through Finiflex. Finitribe was the past. It's it's something. I mean, I I I have a night that was called Finitribe Presents. I've stopped that. Um, I think it's now really time to kind of put it to one side and let it kind of sit where it deserves to be. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not kind of dis, dismissing what we did, but I just I, I want I personally want to move on because it's 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 time. Just when you want to move on, people like me want to have an interview with you. Talking about the past, I know, I don't live there all the time, just occasionally. Anyway, that's probably the third part of my interview with David Miller from Finney Tribe and much, much more. Um, Still one little bit more to go before the end of the show. And like I said, if you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. I'm still there. C at C86 show and also on Instagram check me out and um, like I said all the shows have been archived so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and also Podbean but anyway I think we should have another track by the band this again is taken from the John Peel session from 1989 this is um, oh I had it all in my head now it's all gone I know Check me out as I fudge fudge around. Anyway, it's called Disturb. Indeed.
There you go. What can you say about that one? Joyful. It is Finney Tribe at their best on a track called Disturbed. That was from their John Peel session on the 12th of February, 1989. This is going to be the last part of my interview with David Miller from the band, talking about his other side project or the project that came out of Finney Tribe called Finney Flex, I do believe. And this, as I was trying to sort of gauge and understand a bit more about it, was his answer. David, what's it all about? Yes, I mean, Finney Flex is John and I's project. It's And that's it. It's just the two of us. Um, uh, it's very enjoyable. It's, it's, it's hard to do because we both have um, one full-time jobs and other projects and other work. So it's hard to find the time. I mean, John and I often work at 6 a.m. in the morning because that's the only time we can. But you know that's that, that that's the future. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yes. And what would you? I mean, after all this experience, and you know, and obviously it's you know pretty amazing. Like you said, you you're in the sort of rip it up. That's the Vic Galloway book, isn't it? An exhibition in Edinburgh. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and, and obviously being picked up by John Peel, and and you know, which you know is it's like now looking back on the John Peel show and, and what he did was amazing. So what I mean, what would you kind of say to your 18 year old self? Um, to do exactly the same thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I think an eighteen-year-old self now is is very different. Anyway, I'm not sure that the opportunities. Um, there's so much music now; it's very different. Um, we might have done it very differently because of the because of the avenues and the platforms that you have to make music yourself and to release it yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm involved with the record label now, and we do it very differently to how how we did it. 30 years ago. Um, it's, in one part, much more difficult to get um, music out there because there's so much, and and it's all the dark art of Spotify, really. Um, but in some ways, it's much more interesting and innovative, and I, I work with... We work with lots of people now on the label. Um, I work with lots of I work with lots of bands now up here, and it's it's really exciting. I'm I'm kind of quite excited about the music business here. Yes. In Edinburgh, I mean, Edinburgh was a desert for a very long time, but there are so many people making great music here now. Well, it's interesting because the sort of having sort of looked and read bits on you know in the book you know rip it up and sort of having done sort of quite a lot of the interviews with you know obviously sean from the soup dragons but also the orchids and jasmine minks and the skids oh and big country as well i sort of um realized actually i sort of i hadn't sort of thought of it in that way but i sort of realized that scotland did have such an amazing music scene and there were bands like the shop assistants and then the pastels and 53rd and third records so i mean it's it's always been a sort of a pretty amazing hotbed of of music oh yeah and goodbye mr mckenzie as well so musically you know scotland has always you know done really fantastic stuff yeah i mean i think it probably has punched above its weight i mean there's 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 a lot going on here now. There's, there's there's obviously there's always been a lot going on in Glasgow, but there's a lot going on in Edinburgh and Fife and and the North. It there's so much going on. It's it's hard to kind of find the time to listen to it all and to to kind of work out where it all goes. But it's I think it's a pretty healthy scene. Yes, and also because you you supported Sparks, and I know that they um 
they had a fantastic date here in Norwich and everyone kept saying, that's probably one of the best gigs I've ever been to. But you were, uh, did you enjoy sort of uh, being on stage again, sort of supporting yeah. a band like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we worked with Sparks in the mid-90s. We actually released one of their records and did a video for them and we toured with them. So we'd always kept up with with Ron, I mean, with Russell, especially Russell. So they invited us to play in Glasgow recently, and it was it was fantastic. And I, I actually hope that we we discussed possibilities of working together next year on something. So I hope that might come to fruition. Yes, and looking back at you know your, your sort of releases, which particular sort of album or single gives you the sort of biggest or the greatest happiness? Um, I think an unexpected groovy treat. Really, I think that's probably the most whole, complete album. Um, Shagra is a is a work of art, <laughs> um, but for me, I think I think probably an unexpected groovy treat is is my favourite. Um, and going back, um, there's a there's a single called Zulus, which is a mental record. Um, and the testimony, obviously, is like, you know, you can't get away from the testimony. Any, anyone who speaks to you about the band wants to speak about the testimony. And that's a, it, it's a very special record. It was kind of, it's one of the few records of that time which is still played and still has an energy. Um, Big Gallery was saying to me the other night, he said, like, it's an incredible record. He says, I don't think you really understand what, what an incredible record it is. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, we're, we're lucky to have made that record and for it to be still appreciated and um, admired as much as it is. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I, I think you said the dark arts that is Spotify, but I suppose what I sort of noticed is how many plays these records get and you're thinking, God, that, you know, it's always quite amazing that, you know, around the world, obviously people are still discovering it far yeah. and wide so you know it, it, i suppose that that's the sort of love-hate relationship with spotify is that it does sort of give people that access to sort of music that you may have you know i remember sort of in the old days sort of getting the enemy and sort of struggling to track down a record that they really rated just because the journalist said yes this is single of the week but then you know sometimes never been able to get around to it so spotify it has that sort of unfortunate sort of easy accessibility really doesn't it yeah it does. I mean, I I don't really understand how it works. It's all algorithms and kind of and there's kind of Spotify reps all over in each city, which you know, and there's and there's and there's tastemakers, and and it's all really about getting into playlists, and then you can you can very very quickly um, go to stratospheric if you get into the right playlists. But to get into those playlists is is the dark art and I, i'm not really sure how all that works i'm sure a lot of it is luck and a lot of it will be very probably very similar to how the record business used to work in terms of somebody um taking a brown envelope along the road to somebody who who can who can place something on a playlist i mean i, I think it's great you can just click on spotify and play music but i the, the one thing i i love about still buying vinyl now is that i have I have that music and I, I can touch it and I can I can appreciate it and, it and it sits on a shelf where I can go to and get it. I still find as an older person the and I, I, I DJ with digital files so I get lots of digital files and they all disappear onto little memory sticks and it's it's quite hard to see them and to kind of feel them and to kind of know and they're not there in your face 
So I think a lot of music is very instant and doesn't have a long shelf life. Um, I think that's one of the issues with digital music. It's, it's hard to kind of keep all those, all, the, all those pieces of music in mind when they're not actually physical. And that is the last part of my interview with David Miller from Finney Tribe and Finney Flex. A big thank you for giving me the time. I know I did that interview quite a few months ago and um, it has been making me feel guilty that I didn't put it out, but uh, there's been lots of pressure to do other shows before that. But I thought, no, I'm going to do Finney Tribe next. It's just been sitting there on the shelf or at least in some sort of folder on my desktop. Anyway, huge thank you for that. Um going to leave you with one more track by the band this is going to be 101 have a great week
Bye.